have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part. I see Mr. Jeff standing right there. Love for them to be a part of what we have going on in our Vine Kids time. Just as way as a, of a reminder, uh, next Sunday when we have our uh, big Christmas service, we have all of our families in here. We'll have infant care, but that's really about it. We encourage all of our families to worship and sing and do all that together. So just as a reminder, um, that'll be happening next, next week. So... So we are into week three of Advent. Uh, this shouldn't be a surprise. You've been coming for a little while, but if you're here for the first time, this is the third week of Advent. Advent is a Latin word, actually comes from a Latin word called Adventus, which, which means coming or arrival. And each week I've kind of told you that the, the history of Advent really dates back to the fourth century when it was a time of pre- preparation for the baptism of new believers that happens at the Fe- Feast of Epiphany out in January. It actually wasn't associated till Christmas till sometime right around the end of the fourth, beginning of the fifth century. But there really are two Advents that we celebrate during this time of year. We're all familiar with the one, right? Jesus coming into this world, being born in a manger. That whole scene is the first Advent, the arrival of Jesus. But we actually celebrate a second Advent, the coming or the arrival of Jesus when he comes again. And so Advent is not an event that we look back on 2,000 years in history and say, hey, wasn't that sweet when we had a baby lying in a manger? But Advent is the sort of bookend of creation that God, before the beginning of the, t- beginning of the world, had this incredible redemptive plan set in motion and that Jesus, through the incarnation, broke into the world. John calls it light piercing the darkness, that the incarnation is the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that the incarnation was the inbreaking of God into the world in the middle of that manger, in the middle of that night in the Middle East. And we celebrate that and we look with anticipation to the fact that this world is not the end, that God tells us that Jesus will come back and he will wipe away every tear from our eye and there'll be no more hurt and no more pain and he will make all things new. And therefore, this month is not just a reminder of North Star and the peace of Christ and an infant and mangers and donkeys and camels and things, but instead it's all of that wrapped into all that God promises us. It is an incredible reminder that the incarnation was a radical collision between heaven and earth, that it wasn't the peaceful easing in, but it was piercing of light and darkness and holiness and sin crashing together. And it was a violent, violent, powerful spiritual event in which God broke into humanity through the person of Jesus Christ, walked this earth, died for our sins, raised him from the dead, and then promises to return. And all of our hope as followers of Christ is wrapped up in those pieces, right? And so Advent doesn't just remind us of Christmas and those things. It reminds us that God is a God who keeps his promises. And we built our little three-week series around proclamations that we can make as followers of Christ, like things that are really important and we should be able to articulate and proclaim at this time of year reminds us and pushes us towards. And the first one we talked about two weeks ago was that, Jesus, you are the reason for our hope. And we made it a little bit more personal. We said, Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. And we talked about the truth of the gospel, that you and I are deeply sinful people, and that in our sinfulness, we are powerless, we are ungodly, and we are sinners to the core. That all of our lives and our choices move us away from God. It actually, we are actually enemies of God. But God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he sent his son Jesus to die for our sin that if we put our trust in him, we not only 
have justification that happens now, meaning that we are saved in this moment, but we are saved from the future wrath of God and the promises that that all entails. We sort of talked about it, and we, we talked about how it's one of the most beautiful statements that we could ever utter out from our lips, that you, Jesus, are our hope. That without you, we are utterly and totally hopeless. We are dead in our sin. But as Romans 5 says, that when we were in this condition, you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You saved us. You stepped into our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for my hope. Otherwise, my life is a loss. Last week, we talked about this statement. Jesus, you are the reason that we love. And we talked about how that understanding of what love even looks like is because God gave us this incredible demonstration of it that you and I don't have any comprehension of love outside of what God did. The first John tells us that the only reason that we know love at all is because God demonstrated it for us. And we didn't do it first. He did it for us. And then he calls us to replicate that love to the world. And we talked about the fact that God has lavished this incredible, extravagant love on us and then called us to replicate that to the world, to love people, even the hard people in our lives, even your family members or people at work or those struggling people in your life that just sort of wear you out, that we are called to love people the way that Christ loved us. And that Jesus is the reason that we even understand love, know love, or can give love. And we're called to replicate that. Well, this morning, the third piece we're looking at is this. Jesus, you are the reason for our joy. Now, it actually begs a, a sort of an assumption, and the assumption really in there is that, that we are called as followers of Christ to live lives of joy. Scripture actually points to it all the time. We are called to have lives of inexplainable, undeniable, unquenchable joy, right? We are called to a joyful way of of life. And we've talked about this at length before that there's a difference between joy and happiness and happiness is an emotion that fleets and comes and goes and does those things. It's built on whether the weather's nice or people are nice to us or whatever. But joy is something that is deeply rooted within the wellspring of our life that when we understand the truth of what God did for us, that he is our hope, that he's a demonstration of our love, that we were dead without him, that there is a wellspring of joy that should be embedded in our lives and we are called to tap into that truth. You and I were created to live in joy. The problem is we've misdefined it. Sometimes we define it as that emotion or we define it as prosperity or we put on a fake smile or we, we kind of change the idea of joy into this sort of veiled optimism where we have to walk into places and smile because we're supposed to. The truth is life is hard, right? Things come and go and they're complicated and difficult and challenging and we will face loss and hurt and pain and joy doesn't mean that we smile through all that and just say hey it's gonna be all right but joy is a part of our soul that says in the middle of all this stuff this tragedy this hurt this sort of unknowing this fear this anxiety these things that are weighing in my heart in the middle of all of that I have Jesus and he is enough for me it's finding an anchor of peace and rest in the middle of whatever life brings, no matter what it is. It's a part of us that wakes up and goes, I get to draw breath today. And Jesus is the reason for that joy. And we're going to be exploring that uh, through a sort of a series of things I did a couple of years ago. I want to look at it from a different angle, but we're going to be in the book of Psalms 105. 
And I want to tell you why I landed on this today and, and why I want to revisit these things. Uh, on Fridays, I go to pretty much the same coffee shop every Friday after I drop my youngest off for school, and I spend Fridays riding for Sunday. That's sort of my routine, and, and it's sort of a, a routine I try not to break. Uh, it's important to me. Uh, and I kind of create that time. But I like to go and be in a public place. I do not, I li- actually like the noise. I like the interruptions. It's part of my routine. I like the conversations it throws me into. I'm not one of those people that likes to sort of shut myself off in a closed space and listen to the clock tick. Like I have to have stuff going on. And it oftentimes serves as uh, a reminder and it helps formulate things I'm thinking when I go to write for Sundays and, and whatnot. But this past Friday, so a couple days ago, I was standing in line at this coffee shop, and I saw a guy that I see all the time. And I develop acquaintances and friendships with people because we often sort of run into each other. And I've been doing this now for, I don't know, years and years. And so my routine's relatively similar, and I'm a creature of habit. And so I saw this guy who I've seen before. We're not really friends, but we're acquaintances. We're kind of like, you know, what's up? Shake hands. I know what he does. He kind of knows what I do. We just sort of, that's about the depth of our our relationship. And I saw this guy standing in line and I said, hey man, Merry Christmas, right? Because I don't know, that's what you say. And he looked at me, he goes, ah, yeah, not really. And the line's pretty full of people and I've got the ultimate dilemma, right? I mean, this is the, I have got a ton of stuff to do. I've got nothing I've even thought about doing for Sunday. I know that at two, I've got to get somewhere else to pick somebody up. And I'm thinking, I can look at this guy and say, hey, I went, yeah, so bad, no, sorry. Or just, I hear you, man, or whatever. Or I could go, what do you mean, right? And I know what the what do you mean means because I ask that question a lot. Like, what do you say? I know that there's something there. When you go, hey, Merry Christmas, he goes, ah, not really. It kind of sort of begs for it. So I just thought, okay, so if I preach a really cruddy and a prayer sermon, they'll get over it. Let me engage <laughs> this guy, right, who I've met multiple times who didn't know. And I said, so we got to the front, and he kind of sat down. I sat down with him. I said, I said hey, well, what do you mean, man? Tell me what's going on. And through a, a longer hour or so conversation, he just kind of began to tell me about this time of year really was, he just didn't like it. Um, and job was stressful. Finances were tight. He was divorced, and this year he wasn't getting the kids. And it was just a reminder for him of all the things that he wanted but didn't have. Family, children, that were, he could have a, you know, the picture that we all sort of think is perfect picture. His was broken. You know, work was more pressing. Deadlines were coming up. Works in the financial industry. Deadlines were coming up. He just thought this was all really not great. And so he just said, this is not a fun time for me, man. It's not a fun time. And as I sat there, I thought, you know, I don't really blame him. Because I think a lot of times for us, this season is a reminder of all the things we want but can't have. Um, If you've ever seen a Lexus commercial on TV, right? They don't want the Lexus. You just want the freaking family. I mean, they're incredible, right? They're all sitting around the tree. The kids are reading books. Mom's got hot chocolate. Dad's in pajamas, like full-on pajamas. It's snowing, but there's, no one's cold, you know? Bow on the car out front. They all go for a ride. And for some reason, the driveway has no ice, but there's snow everywhere. And you're going, God, that is what I want. I'm, put, a, I mean, put a beater in the driveway. I'll just take the picture of life there, because my kid, somebody's hitting somebody with an iPad, right? They spilled it on the rug, which we just got, and I'm screaming at somebody, and the dog poops in the corner. <laughs> that is what Christmas looks like for us, right? Probably for you, too. 
But for a lot of us, it's a reminder of what we don't have, right? For some of us, maybe the seasons are really hard. We lost this year, um, someone that we love dearly, or we do come from a broken family where instead of just getting together and everybody's sitting around the Christmas tree and grandpa's playing the piano and everybody's singing, we make eight trips in three days because we've got to see a stepmom and a mom and a dad and a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law and we're zooming around and we're trying not to make them mad, but everybody's guilting us into making sure we're here. And so it's just a lot of stuff. Pushes us further into debt. You know, all statistics point that for most of us, we'll put all of our Christmas experience into debt that we'll be frustrated about and be paying off on because they're things that we want but we can't have and we want to give our kids stuff or we want to give our family stuff. And it, some of us don't even have a tree up and that really is frustrating us. And then we get Christmas cards in the mail and we haven't done ours yet. And it's just like, oh man. And as I sat there listening to this guy, I just thought, for a lot of us, myself included, this, it's a joy-robbing process. It's some tiny little pieces, maybe not the whole thing. And maybe it's not Christmas for you. Maybe it's just life. Maybe there's those moments when you just let something or someone or a series of things sort of just step in and steal that part of you that knows that you are called to a life of joy and gratitude. And you know it. And you know that you've got a lot to be grateful for. I mean, you look around you and you've got a roof and you've got food and you've got a car and you know that you should be grateful because there are people in this world that live on less than $2 a day and they don't even have clean water and you feel guilty for not being grateful, but you just can't sort of get your heart to be at that place where you are overflowing with joy. Like that's not a descriptor you would use of your life. But I'm telling you, you and I were called to that. And I think sometimes we just don't know how to get ourselves to a place where we can remember what that call looks like. So this morning, I want to do something I did a couple years ago. I want to give you, with a little different angle, I want to give you some things that I think that if we really did them, we really paid attention to them, we could reorient our heart and life to begin to find joy in our breath and in our moments again. But they're very practical things, and they're very simple things, and you have to actually do them. They're not things you can sit here and nod and say, hey man, that sounds really good. They're things that you actually have to say, I want my life to become this, and I'm going to actually do this, put this in practice, move this. And we're going to be in, this, in Psalm 105, and Psalm 105 is a really interesting psalm because it's written to remind Israel of all the great things that God has done that they have forgotten. Several of the Psalms are written this way. They're written kind of as a reminder of saying, Israel, God has been so faithful. He has been so good. He has delivered you from so many things, and yet you can't remember. And for me, that's such an echo of my own heart. Like, I know that God has done so many things, but my memory is really short. And so I think what we're going to see in Psalm 105 in these sort of first five verses, there are, there are about nine-ish things Ish, because it can go to eight or 12, but I think we'll make it nine. Nine-ish things that if we do, and I'll keep them short, if we really do, it will revolutionize the way that we think about our lives in Christ and what it means to be joyful. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Psalm 105. And uh, before we do that, let's just pray. Let's ask that God just to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to be in your presence. I thank you for the people that are gathered here. I believe that you bring and gather people very intentionally. And so, Lord, I know that there are things that you want to teach my heart this morning, things that you want to teach our hearts, things that we need to have resonate with our soul. Just ask the Lord right where you sit just to teach you something this morning, just to, to reveal himself or to teach your heart, whatever you need to whisper to God, 
Just ask him to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Pray for them if they're around you, even if you don't know their name. I just want to be a community that is always in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. We ask you to teach our hearts, to instruct us, to move in us, to draw us into your presence. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're just going to look at the first five verses because there's enough there for us to to handle. Um, It's a reminder. It's an exhortation. It's a call for Israel to remember God's faithfulness. Okay, so let's, let's look at it in that light. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength and seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, the miracles and the judgments he has pronounced. So in those short five verses, there's a series of incredibly important things, reminders, points of things that we should anchor our souls to, to say, if I could do this, be this, think this way, it's going to move my life to a life of joy, a life that understands that I was created, literally created by God, to live in him and he in me and to live in great joy. And that doesn't mean, remember, that does not mean that everything's going well. It just means that in the deepest parts of my soul, even when life is rough, I have Jesus, right? So listen, listen to how the psalmist starts. He says this. He says, give thanks to the Lord. Now, how simple are these, right? The you and I are called to be people of gratitude. We are called to be people that look at the Lord and say, God, I am thankful for what you have done in me, through me, and have given me. We are a people who long for more. We want and we want and we want. Part of the reorienting of our heart is developing a passion in our souls to be people that thank God. And it actually takes intentional movement by you and by me. It takes me saying, God, I want to wake up this morning and be someone who is grateful. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be resentful. I don't want to be angry about what I don't have, what she has, what he has, what they have, what job I'm in that I don't like. I don't want to be bitter that my car breaks down, that this isn't happening, that we don't get to go and do this this year, or that my family forgot it was my birthday. I don't want to be that person. I want to be grateful. And gratitude begins with understanding what we talked about the past two weeks. But you and I don't deserve anything. We just don't. We're broken and sinful, and the Bible calls us enemies of God. And yet God, in his infinite, incredible, extravagant love, rescues us, redeems us, draws him into a, us into his presence, even when we are deeply sinful and choosing all of our selfish ways. Right? God saves us. Gratitude begins in that moment, and it flows through every other breath. 
I'm grateful, God, that I get to come and be in a place where we can worship together. Because a lot of us in here have been in places and in countries where you can't do this. I'm grateful, Lord, that there are people in this world that are suffering for their Christianity. My Christianity is really just a convenience to me. I want to be a person of gratitude. I want to be thankful, right? Thankful, deeply thankful, not resentful. A lot of us live in marriages that are not built on gratitude, right? They're built on resentment and bitterness. They're built on picking on flaws and not finding joy in the other person's successes. A lot of us are looking around us going, is this ever going to happen for me? Whether it's a relationship or whether it's a new job or whether it's whatever, we're built on the I want more. Because as a culture, as a Western culture, we are taught to never quit wanting, right? Scripture teaches us that we are called to give thanks to the Lord. Not just grateful that we can draw breath, but that God has given us breath to draw. So the first thing that we see is give thanks to God. Be a person of gratitude and thankfulness. The second one is call on his name. You know what that really means? It it means become a person of prayer. Part of developing a heartbeat of joy is saying, I want to be a person that calls on the name of God. And not just when I need answers or solutions or when things are bad. I actually want to be someone that is deeply embedded in prayer. God, I want to know you. I want to know your heart. I want to be a person who prays. I want to call upon your name. I want it to be the echo of my soul. If I were to sit down with each one of you and say, tell me about your prayer life. Most of us, if we're being totally truthful, would say, yeah, we pray maybe before meals at home, right? And maybe as I sit here in church, but outside of that, it's a couple of sentences here or there or whatever, but I wouldn't describe myself truthfully as a person of prayer. What the psalmist is saying is, look, be grateful and call upon the Lord like every moment of your life, call out to him. God, I need you. God, I desire you. God, I want you. God, I long for you. God, show me your face. God, show me where you're moving. God, reveal in me. God, change my heart. God, I am calling and crying and reaching out to you. Instead of just after I can't do anymore, and then I cry out for God because I was unable to rescue and redeem and fix my own life. But at every moment, God, I want to be a person that prays. And most of us long for that, but do nothing to remedy it. You all would say, and I would say, I want to be a person who prays more, but we do nothing to remedy that fact. These things take movements. That's why I said you can't just sit here and nod and say, oh yeah, that's true. No, you have to decide that it's going to be who you are and do the things that it takes to change it. What's it going to take? You've got to start praying. You've just got to figure out a way in your life where that becomes the number one priority is to call out to God. So we become people that are grateful, right? We call out to the Lord. We call upon his name. We make known, number three, we make known among the nations what he has done. We're a people that are called to talk about God. Every single one of us in here, if we read the New Testament, is an evangelist. It's not for me. It's not for pastors. It's not for just people who are teachers. It is every single person that has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. We become evangelists and we are called to make known to the nations what God has done. What that means is that we have to talk about Jesus. And talking about Jesus does a couple of things. One, it forces us 
forces us to talk about the things that God has done in us. I want to talk about Jesus because how he has changed me. And two, it causes us to see value in other people. Because if we truly believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, and I won't share that with someone else, it tells me that I don't value or love them enough to share the truth of eternal life with them. Because I'm selfish and I'm afraid of what that might return, right? We are called to tell the nations about God's incredible glory. People, the bank teller, your coworker, the person at Starbucks, like whoever, talk about the Lord. It doesn't have to be this picture of dogmatic sort of, you know, evangelism that we all think we're going to be seen as. Most people just want to know that you care enough about them to tell them things that matter, to invite them into the places that matter to you. Hey, our life group's having this, or we're doing Bible study here, or our church is doing this, or come over and have dinner with my wife and I, or our family, or whatever. But I just want to tell you about why these things and you matter to me, right? We are called to talk and to make known what God has done. If you've never shared the gospel with anyone as a follower of Christ, we're missing our calling. People that are grateful, overwhelming with gratefulness, calling as people of prayer, talking about Jesus. Look at verse two, number four. Sing to him, sing praise to him. One of the great beginnings to reclaiming a joy-filled life is coming in simple things like praising God. And and actually, the psalmist is very clear. Sing to him, sing praise to him. And I love this because part of what we're called to do is to sing to the Lord. Now, for a lot of you, you'll say, man, you don't want to hear me sing. You're right, I probably don't, but God does. He loves it. I'm talking about sing in your car, makeup songs, sing scripture. One of the greatest joys in my whole life, when we first had our, our first kiddo, my, one that somehow ended up in high school, when she was little, right, ones and twos and infants, I could walk by her bedroom at night and I could hear my wife just singing praise over her and to her and stuff that I'd never heard, just making stuff up. But it was one of the most incredible things I'd ever witnessed. And I believe it honors the Lord and reminds us of things that are great when we sing to him. Who cares what you sound like or if it makes sense? We are offering our souls to the Lord. And music, God has created this, this medium to offer worship and prayers to him. Sing to him. He's telling this to Israel. He's saying together. You know what this does? It knits you together to offer this passionate movement to God. It's why worship matters. It's not a performance where people get up here and we turn on our smoke machines and everyone says, look how great they are. No, it's the medium for the community to get together and say, God, hear our collective heartbeat to you. And it's jumbled and it's broken and things don't always work and people scream loud, but it is beautiful. And we are called to it. You want to redevelop joy in your life? Become a person who sings to the Lord. God delights in it. We are grateful. We are called to be people that overflow with gratefulness. We are called to call upon his name. We are called to talk about the things of God. And we are called to be a people that worship. 
And not just together. Just sing to the Lord, right? Look at the next one. He goes on to say this. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. A little bit different than the first, the one we saw just kind of two points ago, which was tell all the nations. This is tell of his wonderful acts. Part of what we're called to do as followers of Christ is tell people about the good things that God has done in us, around us, or that we've seen. We're really great at sharing prayer requests. Please pray for this. Please pray for this. I need this. God, I need God to do this. My sister's struggling. My aunt's got this. We're really great at sharing those prayer needs, but we're really bad at sharing the great things that God has done. God has been faithful. He's restored my marriage. He fixed this. He moved and interceded here. God heard my cry. Instead of being afraid, I feel safe. Tell people of the wonderful things of God. You know what this does when we tell people of the wonderful things of God? It reminds our own heart of how beautiful God is. When we talk about things, they're very real. Right? When you retell a story, when you share with someone, it becomes very real. It's one thing to think in my heart that I love someone. It's another thing to look at that person in the eye and say, I love you, and I want to tell you why. It only gives value to them, but it, it reminds my heart how much I care for them. Because when you articulate things in words, right, they become incredible reminders to our soul. Tell people of the wonderful things of God. And not the, God has given me this, and I gave $10, and all of a sudden $100 came in the mail. Like, not the prosperity garbage, but the real wonderful things. Like, I was really struggling, and God renewed my faith. Or my marriage was in shambles, and God patched it together. Or I should be in desperate fear because I lost my job, but for some reason, I just believe God is going to work it out. Like, I just want to tell you how wonderful he is. It's not so much for everyone else as it is for us to tell each other the stories of how great God is. This was so important for Israel. They were on the run, literally. They were running for their lives, back and forth. Forgetfulness was sort of the picture of their life. And sitting around together and talking about how good God is, that's incredible. It's a great reminder. My brother and I still, we'll go to Austin over the break or over this little holiday time, but we'll get together and we'll still tell stories about our dad. And we'll laugh and we'll remember. And it's so good. Part of that is true about our Lord. Tell about the wonderful things. Remind each other about how good he is, right? So be people that talk about the wonderful things of God, right? We want to recreate joy, give thanks, be thankful, be a person of prayer, make known among the nations what he's done, talk about Jesus, sing and worship, tell about his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Listen to the next one. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. You know what this means? Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. You know what this means to me? It means smile. Now think about this for a minute. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Yes, we are a people that are called to joy, but we are also a people who are called to enjoy life. Smile more. Run more. Play more. Make memories. Go out with your friends. Engage with your families. Do things. 
There was a period in history where Christians believed that in order for them to fully understand God, they had to deny themselves of everything that was pleasurable, to remind themselves of the sacrifice that the Lord made. The monastic movement actually came out of that sort of self-denial of pleasure. But if you read Scripture, there's a part of us that are deeply called, of our lives that are deeply called to live joyful, happy, engaged, playful lives with each other and with the community. You can go around the rest of your life berating yourself for all the things you've done wrong, not forgiving yourself, not enjoying life, making sure that you know all the things that you've done wrong. Truth is God has forgiven you from those in Christ Jesus and he has called us to redemption and to new life. His mercies were new today. So why do we keep beating ourselves up over the same things that God has freed us from? Let those who seek the Lord rejoice. Is your life marked that way? Skip an afternoon to work. Take your kids to the movies. Get in a snowball fight somewhere where there's snow. Find joy, right? You are able to do this. Even in the midst of struggle and tragedy, tell stories, laugh, right? People that seek the face of God rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. This is a simple one for me. I can always tell when I'm not engaged here because life becomes an incredible burden. Look to the Lord and his strength. Look, life is going to throw you curveballs. It's going to throw you really hard things. In fact, something may happen this afternoon you weren't anticipating. Sometimes those things are devastating. Sometimes they're just wrinkles in life. But it is not guaranteed that it's going to go according to how you plan it. I can promise you that. Cars are going to break down. People are going to get sick. We're going to walk through loss. We're going to walk through hurt. We're going to walk through struggles. And what does the psalmist say? It reminds Israel to call upon the strength of the Lord. It means when we face those things, whose strength are we trying to live in, under, or through? Our own? Or do we call upon the Lord and say, God, I can't do it? You know that adage that says, God will never give you more than you can handle? It's a lie. It's not even in Scripture. Of course God will give you more than you can handle. You can't handle anything. Right? Why? So that we'll call upon him. And he can show us how great he is and how mighty he is and how strong he is. That at his voice, nations tremble. And that he spoke life into dirt. This is the God who wants to give us his power and strength and supply for our lives. And yet we continue to just try and rely on our own. You will not be able to withstand life and all that it brings if you're trying to do it on your own. Jesus even says in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, right? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what Jesus is saying is that when you're struggling and you're pulling and you're doing all those things and it's tiring and burdensome, it's because you're doing it. But my yoke is easy because my strength is incredible. So whose strength are we living under? Our own or the Lord's? Well, the psalmist says, look to the Lord and his strength. Just a couple more. 
Seek his face always. I love this one because it's deeply intimate. The face of God is perhaps the most intimate statement that we can make about God in Scripture. Because faces, of course, are deeply personal and they're deeply real. And the face of God was beautiful. It's intimate. And the question that this really begs is, how is your personal relationship with the Lord? I mean, that part of you that that wants to know him and pray and read scripture and wakes in the morning and says, God, I want to know who you are. Our lives are called to be intimately intertwined with the Lord. We are called to have personal love relationship with Jesus. He has stepped into our life as a savior, not just to save us, but so that we might know the heartbeat of God. We're called to real, true relationships with him. And most of us reduce that down to a Sunday morning. But it's an everyday, every breath, intimate movement with the Lord. When is the last time you spent true, real, personal, or quiet time with him? Seeking his face, saying, God, I just want to know you. I promise you that if you are living in restlessness or a lack of peace or a lack of joy or a life that you would consider just middle of mediocrity, you can trace it, I guarantee you, back to this point, which is do you have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus? where you seek him and know him and call out to him and he reveals himself to you? Or is your life a series of spiritual rocks that you try and jump from and jump from to jump from just so you don't sink in the water? We can trace our hurt and our fear and our anxiety and our lack of joy and our lack of hope. I promise you right here. And what the psalmist says is, look, seek the face of God. I just love it. And he says, always, right? Not when things are hard or great, but always. means every day that I wake up, Jesus gets the first and the best. The first in my time, the best in my time. Everything in my life is his. He gets the first and the best, not the leftovers. He didn't get the leftover results of my money or whatever. He gets the best of everything that I've got. He doesn't get the what's left of my time after I've gone to work and come home and coached and done all these things I do with my kids and then I fall into bed collapsing tired and he gets none of it because I'm just wiped out. Jesus gets the best always and the first always. And then finally, verse five, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments that he has pronounced. I mentioned this when I first started. One of the great tragedies of my life as a follower of Christ is that my memory is ridiculously short. God has done incredible things in my life. For 25, 30 years, God has, he has had his fingerprint on things that I can trace and I can see and I can know. Yet as soon as life goes sideways or something happens or stress, my memory goes from like 60 to zero. And I begin to panic and have anxiety and fear and say, God, what are we going to do? And I can't recall all the incredible things that God has done, how he's never left me, never forsake me, never abandoned me, none of those things. Instead, I panic because of my lack of trust. But what the psalmist is reminding the Israelites is that God has never left them. He has delivered them. He has provided for them fire by night, shade by day, food every morning, delivering from the hands. He's saying, how is your memory so short? How? So what do you do to remedy a short memory? You do this. You remember the wonders, right? The miracles and even the judgments. 
You know what that means? That we remember the wonders, the things that God did that were just too incredible to speak of. Like, I can't believe that God gave me this family, this thing, this wife, this life I get to be a part of. The miracles, the moments that I prayed for something that didn't make sense and God did it. And the judgments, the times that I failed him and I was corrected by him are still moments of his beautiful love. We remember those things. We develop long-term memories that say, God, you have never, ever left me. You have never forsaken me. I have never turned around and you weren't there. Why would I believe that you would start now? Cultivating a life of joy, true joy that says, even in the middle of whatever's going on, like I have Jesus and he is enough for me. If you were to take these nine things, and I encourage you to go in with Psalm 105, I didn't make up any quippy little titles. They're right there. And write them down and say, every day I want to do one of these, or I want to do every one of these in one small way. Give thanks, pray, talk about Jesus, sing to him, tell of his wonderful acts, right? Talk about the great things he has done. Let my heart rejoice, smile more, rely on his strength, seek his face, and remember the wonders and the miracles and the judgments of God and how he has never forsaken me. The remedy for our broken joy is a series of movements forward and the things that we have to engage in. And you get to decide what the next weeks, days, years are going to look like for you. You can continue to live in a life that punishes yourself and does all the things or continues to live in a way that just says, I want, I want, I want. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Or you can say, Jesus, you've created me for more than that. You've created me for more than the I want and the I have nots. You've created me for a life that knows you and finds joy in you and draws breath and loves every single second of it. Even in the most difficult times, you are enough for me. You decide how you're going to live because Jesus is the reason for our hope. He is the reason we love and he is the reason that we have joy. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word and its truthfulness. I thank you that it is never ceasing, that it is never empty, that it is always powerful and true. And I thank you, God, that you call us to a life of joy. You actually call us to a life to enjoy each other and to enjoy your creation and to enjoy relationships and to find great joy and to not live in constant disappointment or frustration or anxiety or fear or stress. If we have those things, we are doing something wrong. If we let stress and anxiety and fear run our lives, we are not trusting you. God, for a lot of us this season, it escalates some of those feelings. The feelings of loss, feelings of hurt, feelings of not having enough, of stress, of overtime, of whatever. Those aren't from you. They're just not. And so God, I pray that you would help us cut those out and rediscover the joyful life we're called to. To quit a few things and begin a few new things. To make some declarations in our lives and places to stand that we will be people that are grateful, that we will pray, that we will tell the nations. God, that we will do these things. We will tell of your wonderful acts. 
We will seek your face always. We rely on your strength. And we will remember that you never fail. So Lord Jesus, we ask you to come. We ask you to come. We ask you to reinvade our hearts and our minds and our thinking with your glory and with your hope and with your love and with your joy. Lord, we turn our hearts and our lives and as we sing, as we close this time, may this be an echoing from our hearts that we are called as a community to sing your praise because of what you have done. And God, let that be our response this morning of people that are driven by joy. Let's close our time in worship this morning by standing and praising God for all that he is and all that he promises us. Thank you.